Hey everybody, Magnus here. Just by way of introduction, I just want to let you guys know what you're about to hear. A while ago, I started a, a, a retrospective about Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice with John M. Wilson and Rebecca Johnson, and the recording went long. Like, really long. Almost six hours. And so, there's no way I wanted to force a six-hour podcast on each of you, so basically what I decided to do was divide this episode up into smaller, more easily digestible, bite-sized nuggets, and hopefully that would be, I don't know, hopefully that would be a little bit more tolerable. So anyway, so that's that. Basically, I'm going to pass you guys back to, well, myself, John, and Rebecca, and we're going to resume the discussion about Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, the ultimate cut. Well, the uh, synopsis uh, goes forward with uh, Bruce attends a gala at LexCorp in order to steal encrypted data from the computer's mainframe, but has it taken from him by an antiquities dealer named Diana Prince. And I, this, this synopsis is a little bit out of sequence with itself, so I think that maybe is where we need to put a, uh, a thumbtack in this and just talk about that whole... Uh, library, books, whatever it is, gala thing that Clark and Bruce and Diana all attended. And just and I'll just say that, you know, guys, I like to think that I'm I, I'm semi-literate. You know, I mean, I'm not I'm not exactly the dimmest bulb in the box when it comes to you know analysis and stuff. I'd like to think I can do okay. But one of the things that honestly it had to be pointed out to me after it showed up in one of the trailers of. Lex literally brought Clark and Bruce together, and then he literally joked about pick, Bruce picking a fight. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it is that dialogue, when you think about it, it's just so on the nose. And yet, somehow, as on the nose as it is, it just went right by me. And then to kind of like punctuate his point, he kind of uh, thumps uh, Clark on the chest. And instead of sounding like when you slap, flesh it sounds more like when you hit something solid and it's i don't know i mean it's just it's a really good scene i mean people can love eisenberg's lex or they can hate eisenberg's lex but i just really dig that scene you know and that kind of incoherent speech he gives like when somebody who's really brilliant tries to speak i find that they sound stupid because they always assume they're talking to morons and it's hard for them to put their thoughts together in a way that they think is dumbed down enough for the masses. And that's I, I have that. I have that uh, experience a lot. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you're, you're, well I, you know what? It's kind of funny. You, you, you teach, I forget the age level. They're 13. Yeah. 13, 14, eighth grade math. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. And so, I mean, um, John, uh, I would never insult you. I would certainly never insult your profession. But I will say that just as a person who lives life, there is such a thing as a bell curve. And there is such a thing as the far side of it. And by percentages, there you're going to have some number of students in your class that are on the wrong side of the bell curve. Mm-hmm. And the very most you may be able to say to them that gets through is good morning. But if you... You know, if you're if you've got ambitions of someday, you know, breaking down Kirkegaard with them, well, you, you may you may be out of luck there. You know, I mean, 
again, not insulting you, not insulting your profession, but stupid people do exist. And I don't know. It's, I don't know. It, it, I find that the way that uh, Lex kept tripping over his own words and he was restarting his own thoughts and then he would launch into a new thought, it, it was just incoherent enough. You know, this is somebody who's really smart trying to talk to somebody that he thinks is a complete blithering, knuckle-dragging idiot. And that's what I took from that scene. I just eat it up with a spoon. It's so good. Well, he stumbles, I think, because he recognizes his own need for power. And his 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 way into that, I think, for Lex is having knowledge. A, mm-hmm. a lot of the things that he, the way he operates is because he, because he is so super smart. He's able to play all of the, you know, move all of the pawns on the chessboard uh, to get to where he can eventually have i get i guess checkmate i'm not really a chess player so i'm I'm terrible with these chess metaphors but he eventually does you know succeed in what he's wanting to accomplish by the end of the movie and i i think for him that that speech is i think you're absolutely correct i think he is so smart that it's hard for him to take you know remove the things in his brain that are just like there's probably so much going on in his brain to be able to uh, have complete sentences and and speak them and make sense and try not to give away things to the public that he is thinking about in his head. He, he even talks in that scene to Bruce about his R&D department being up to no good. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a level of Lex Luthor that when he's out in the public, he has to portray him a certain, himself a certain way, and he doesn't want to give away the more maybe nefarious deeds that he's got going on. So he's, he lives a little bit of a double life. And I think that scene really shows that he's, he's struggling to figure out how to portray himself in front of people. And I I like that you, you mentioned that he brings Bruce and Clark together, but he also, I think orchestrates Diana to be there at the same time because uh, he does have that picture of her that she's trying to retrieve uh, that plays so prominently in the Wonder Woman solo film. And uh, so he knows who she is when he has her, because I, I assume that they all have to have invitations in order to get to that party. So the fact that she's there shows that he knows about her and wants her to be present at that uh, that that place, at, at that place at that certain time with those certain people. So it's just another good example of how, like, like we're talking about, about how smart he is, that he orchestrates Everything, everything is all part of Lex Luthor, Luthor's plan, and I think that makes him such a good villain. I hadn't connected his knowledge of Diana with her presence at that gala. You're right. That's because he has the photo of her. He has the file on her, along with his files of all the other um, future leaguers. And I guess I don't know if, if his um, if his people created all those emblems for them, I'm kind of amused by the idea of, of somebody just like in Photoshop making, Oh, this guy makes lightning. Okay. Let's give a lightning bolt. And uh, <laughs> this guy looks like a cyborg. Let's give a cool little C with some metallic idea. Yes. Maybe, maybe mercy did that. I don't know. She's, she's pretty cool. Um, but well, one of the things I kind of want to throw out there is, you know, John, you and I have talked about this uh, a lot of times, but you know, Bruce is consumed with hate for Superman, you know, You've got to think that here's a guy that has Superman's face almost burned into his own memory. He comes face to face with Clark, who's wearing this kind of tweedy looking jacket and then a pair of glasses. And he doesn't see his enemy standing in front of him. 
And, you know, people, again, people will mock and ridicule the glasses as a disguise. But I maintain that this pair of glasses is the is the most genius disguise in the entire world. And I think Henry Cavill himself even proved that whenever it was a publicity stunt. But he sat in uh, Times Square right underneath a gigantic Superman poster <laughs> wearing glasses. And nobody nobody recognized him, you know. And here Bruce is face to face with, uh, with with Superman wearing a pair of glasses and he doesn't get it. And the... The example I used that, that John, you seem to like a lot was the Osama bin Laden effect, where if you, if you stand up right now and look outside your, your living room window and you see some dude walking down the street, you see Osama bin Laden. Well, you're not going to say, holy shit, that's Osama bin Laden. What you're going to say is, holy Are shit, that, that guy looks just like Osama bin Laden. You know, that's, right. that's what most people would say. And so, you know, it, it really is a brilliant disguise to hide in plain sight like that. And there's anyway, I, I, I just like that moment. And precisely because Bruce of all people should know and doesn't intuitively, whereas Lex does know because of technology and that's why everyone's there. I want to add to that. Um, just the way this particular story is told. My impression is that Superman's face is not common knowledge. Um, Superman, every time we see Superman relating to the public in this story, he's up in the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He doesn't come down and do a whole lot. People don't really see him as a person. Um, the, the camera shots we see, uh, at the beginning, whenever Metropolis is being torn down, Bruce is looking up at these far away aliens fighting in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever he goes to save the house that's being flooded, we see from the people's perspective, the sun is shining behind this shadowy flying figure in the sky. Uh, whenever he goes to the Senate hearing, he floats in the sky and then quickly goes down into the building. And I think walking into the building and into that Senate hearing might be one of the few times that Superman has made himself publicly visible. Hmm. As right. A and, person. and the tragedy of that is that the, the people who get the greatest glimpse of him, you know, all those photographers in the Senate hearing, their cameras are just flashing, 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 going off because they get a really close up shot of him. But then those people, they get exploded. You know, they they um, tragically they lose their lives in that moment. So those those people are probably the only people who have have the greatest shot. Now, he does say that little girl uh, from the burning building and it has a, you know, a close up, very intimate, uh, relationship to those people when he delivers the girl back to, I guess, her mother. Um, but I think that's one of the very few times that, that he actually interacts with the, the people face to face. Um, what do y'all feel? I was, I was trying to think about life in a world or in a city where there's a giant statue of Superman, in a portion of the city that has been destroyed. And we're basically talking about a 9-11 ground zero type of situation, only on a much more land area scale uh, of destruction. And in the place of that is now a plaza with a statue of Superman. And 
I was just trying to think about what kind of cultural implications that would have. Well, I kind of regard that, and this is not to touch on, you know, like political issues. So if you think you're hearing a political statement in this, it's probably just a trick of the microphone. Um, but we have monuments uh, all across this country, not just in the South, but we have monuments all across this country of war heroes. And some of these uh, heroes fought in wars that were fought in America, on American soil. And I regard that as, as it's basically just a tribute to who those people were. So just imagine, you know, the most, the most cherished uh, uh, military figure from history that you can imagine who fought in a war that, was, that occurred inside of American borders, somebody that you really love. That's the guy that I'm talking about. Uh, somebody who's controversial. That's not. That's not who I mean at all. And um, <laughs> that you know, I I think that's actually the sign of uh, a healthy acceptance of your own history, and basically regarding the fact that this is an important space. Something important did happen here, and the life that this person lived does matter. And. I don't know if that's necess- that kind of tribute is necessarily appropriate for every figure in history. You know, I mean, you know, George Washington was our was our first president, and he was a general in the in uh, the War of Independence against uh, Great Britain. But you know, does that does does just his military record does that alone qualify him to have a statue, or is the f- the fact that he's the president? I mean, you know, it. It's not inherently it's not I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be bad. I just don't think it's a particularly good thing in this case, considering the context of this story. Like if they were to build us oddly enough, if they were to build a statue in Superman's memory after this movie, I think that would be a little bit more appropriate. Now they have reasons for not doing so, and i I like that, but you know I the idea of a of a Superman statue by itself doesn't doesn't bother me. It's just there's something about it in this movie. It's a little bit creepy. It's a little bit sick. And when what's his name spray paints false god to the front of it, I kind of have to think maybe he's on the right track. That's just me. I like the parallel to thinking about it in terms of the real life war heroes. I'd n- I never really thought about it. Uh, quite like that before. So I think that's a good parallel. I look at the statue, uh, what, what I think is really cool about it in the way uh, I kind of see it and I perceive it is that after what goes down in the Battle of Metropolis at the end of Man of Steel, I, I assume that the city of Metropolis took it upon themselves like the government to build the statue. Like I assume that that is the government putting money into that and creating that park heroes park what i think is really cool at the end of batman v superman is that the statue has been destroyed doomsday throws superman through it kind of destroying that uh, i guess in in some ways uh you know signifying the fact that he's going to kill superman maybe destroying that uh, the worship from the city whatever however you want to see that um but i think it's really cool that even though the superman statue is gone by the end of the movie the people 
of Metropolis take it upon themselves to create their own monument. You know, they have that, uh, if you seek his monument, look around you. And I, I really love that. It's kind of written somebody, I, I guess it's chalk or something. Somebody takes it upon themselves to handwrite that message to everyone in Metropolis in honor of Superman. It's not necessarily that they want another Superman statue, but but they see the uh, I think it, they ins- they see Superman as an inspirational figure to become heroes for each other. Even though Superman's not there anymore, they they can look around themselves and be Superman for each other. So I think for me, that's what I take away from the Superman statue is that the uh, the government maybe had taken it upon themselves to create that statue, but in the end, the statue's not what what matters. It's what Superman means to them that matters. Yeah. And I I guess like the angle that I had with that was that this was the world and in microcosm in Metropolis finally uh, rightly categorizing Superman's place in their world. Now it happens after his apparent death, but they finally understood. And that's what it took. You know, for all of the controversy and all of, in some ways, scandal that surrounded Superman, fighting to the death is what it took for mankind to get it. But they did get it in the end. And I, that that's the part I like. It's, it's a big parallel to, um, you know, cultural myth, like the gospel story and other stories of people who do their best to do good all their lives and don't really get the um, respect's not the right word, but just the, the acknowledgement that they are a good person. And then stuff goes down that casts a lot of doubt on who they are. And to, to go back to the gospel, um, you know, Jesus spent however many years doing all these acts of service. Um, Events cast a shadow on his reputation. He gets killed. And it's only after that that people start to respect that this was a man who was acting in our best interests the whole time, not his own. And and you get that really strongly with Superman here. He He walks a very similar path that he's just trying to do the right thing. He's a dude with powers, trying to use them the right way, trying to do what his dad taught him, trying to make the world a better place. And um, now he's getting called on the carpet for it. Now he gets killed and crucified for it. Um, But it's only after he's gone that people are like, wait a second. We just killed Superman. That was Superman. And now we realize what Superman was all about. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Go ahead. I know we kind of breezed past it, but I just have to mention how creepy that I, I found the Jolly Rancher scene that Luther did with the guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw a very similar scene recently in a Walking Dead episode from a few years back because I've been journeying through the Walking Dead. Um, there's this guy who's, you know, making his physical presence a bit too known to a particular girl. And, um, He's sucking on a lollipop that she had stolen from her, and um, he forces it into her mouth as a way of saying, you know, I can make you do whatever I want. And that immediately made me think of this scene from Batman v Superman that Luthor 
you know, the senator's guy has just opened all of his doors he's asked for. And then Lex basically wipes his boots on the guy. And is like, I can make you do whatever I want you to do. It's it's a way of showing for Lex to show his superiority to that guy that he can can uh, be creepy like that and and have that other the the government be inferior to him and I always thought that scene that moment it is creepy I will give you that it's very very creepy but it always got a laugh out of the audiences that I saw it with so again people told me this movie had no humor in it but these are the facts. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so people did see that as a little bit of humor cause he's, he's creepy, but in some ways he's, he's a little bit funny. So I, I, I would, uh, I'm glad you brought up that scene. Well, and one of the things that I, th- I want to be careful because I don't, when I say that I like that, it, it's almost, it's almost like saying I, I appreciate that. And I want to be kind of careful there. And I also don't want to open up like a, a, a can of worms, like politically or anything, Although, like, there's a certain amount of politics kind of built into this movie anyway, so whatever. But, you know, one of the things that the left in America has been saying for a very long time, and I think the right in the last couple of years has kind of somewhat started agreeing with, is that, you know, we have these giant corporations that have basically that, that are basically buying our politicians, you know, every election cycle, and... You know, I mean, I'm not going to name names, you know, and say who I think these people are, you know, because you guys, I'm sure you all, you're all adults. You can figure that stuff out for yourself. But the principle of it that I don't think that the right has ever been as adamant about this as the left has. They've been saying it, I think, literally my whole life. We need to get big business out of government. We need to get the we need to get big business out of our politicians and. This scene is, I think, kind of an indi- uh, sort of like an expression of maybe why that is. Lex Luthor is not necessarily on the side of the angels here, you know? He's got his own agenda. There are things that he wants to do. And look, if it benefits everybody else, fine. But what he really cares about is benefiting himself. And if he has to step on a United States senator in order to do that, step on the will of the people in order to do that, then guess what he's going to do, you know? And again, I mean, I'm not, I I don't really see a problem with, you know, mentioning like the politics of something, as long as you don't go in like a partisan direction with it. Mm -hmm. I don't really see the problem with that. But, you know, this is something that, you know, and John, if you think I'm wrong on this, please, I want you to correct me. But this is something that I remember the left saying for a very long time. And this maybe. You know, this is kind of like an over-the-top illustration of what those conversations are really like. I seriously doubt that. Um, uh, just to uh, just imagine some huge corporate conglomerate out there that they send somebody to Washington to stick Jolly Ranchers into senators' <laughs> mouths. I seriously doubt that literally happens. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what happens. Oh, okay. Or maybe it <laughs> that's what I would like to think happens. Now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, it's. That's to me, this is why this is a, a very good example of why the left has been saying this for all this time. So, you know, John, I, I kind of set you up there. So if you want to take a swing at the ball, feel free. No, that's that's fine. Um, I'm not sure how. I, I think one of the things that every person who gets into a political position of power finds out is just how complex things really are. 
and how many people you have to try to make happy. And there are certain industries that have a huge impact on our economy. And you, you, there's a big pressure to make those industries happy. I don't know that I really need to go any, any, any farther with it than that. But yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things of, of life. Um, every person who's ever run for president has made promises and then they get there the first day of the job and they realize just how impossible it's going to be to, to make those happen. Um, can I talk about Perry White? Uh, please do, because we've kind of skipped past him and I feel bad about that. Um, my notes are kind of like, I, I took them as we we're going through the movie. So they're, they're very much in the order of the movie. Um, so Perry White is one of the, in, I thought they made some really interesting choices with him because generally in the comics, Perry White is the die hard old school journalism, truth matters at all costs. And yet somehow my newspaper is still managing to, to get publication. Um, and we see a very different Perry White in this. We see someone who's more jaded, someone who's more pragmatic in his reporting choices, mm-hmm. um, someone who, in a very interesting, funny line, brings up 1938, the first year of mm-hmm. Superman comics, yep. as an ideal for when you could tell those kinds of stories. Um, but in Clark's continuing wrestling match with what is right and what is wrong, he t- he points out to Perry, when you choose assignments, you're choosing who matters. And the news has just told Clark that whenever he chooses to save someone, he's choosing who matters. Mm-hmm. And he's hoping that Perry can give him some insight on this, and Perry ends up just being a bit of a hard ass about it. Um, so to me, Perry White is probably the one character that really departs the most from the comics without much of an in-story explanation other than this is just the way reporting is these days. Hmm. Well, yeah, the uh, I guess, you know, my my answer to that is, you know, there are a lot of different ways that Perry can be done. And honestly, the only way I've ever seen Perry done that I just kind of disagree with is the way he was portrayed in Superman Returns, where he was this meek and kind of soft-spoken, almost like a church mouse type. And instead of, you know, barking, come on, get out of the story! You know, he doesn't really (laughs) say that. You know, he has this conference with all of his writers, he stares at him for a second, and then he just kind of whispers, come on. And it what you know no that is not what perry white needs to be so you know no this isn't a cigar uh chomping uh, barking at everybody you know type of perry it's a very he's a little bit more i think uh set in his ways my way or the highway type uh, type of guy but he is fair in as much as if you persuade him he'll 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 give in you know Lois has to persuade him on a few different things in Man of Steel, but he gives in. She has to persuade him again on a few different things in Batman v Superman, but he gives in. Clark's challenge seems to be that he hasn't figured out how to make an argument that Perry can believe in. But once he cracks that code, if he ever does, then he's going to have instantly a better rapport with his boss. You know, he never explains in terms that Perry's going to sympathize with why it's important to, to talk about uh, the Batman 
when all Perry's thinking about is keeping the lights on, you know? And Lois has that ability, and Clark, it seems, just really doesn't. And, you know, speaking of Lois, you know, following that gala scene, she has this, uh, this scene with, it looks like a forensic scientist, where they analyze the bullet that Lois found. And this isn't the first time that it happens in this movie, but this is the first, I guess, like powerful reminder that we get in a while in the movie's runtime that, number one, there's goings-on to be figured out with this bullet. And number two, Lois is right there in the center of it. This is, it's not that this is her story, necessarily because it still kind of feeds into Superman and goings on with Lex Luthor and all that. But this is, this is who Lois is and this is what she does. You know, she unfolds the mystery of the story. She basically explains what's going on for us. Right. And she does this, I think in a way that's kind of, it's uh, kind of like her own little solo adventure. It's not, again, it's not her own story per se, but it is her own I guess corner of the movie where she's kind of, she has to do this sort of Dick Tracy thing where she's got, she's got to find the, find out what this bullet is. She's got to get her man and you know, all of that. And I kind of like that because in, let me think in a previous movies, like, you know, Lois had her own, she had story, a story that she was chasing down in Superman, the movie about who's buying up all of that worthless desert land. But that's really just a device to give her something to do until it's time for Superman to rescue her. Whereas here, like legitimate revelations come out of this. I mean, like there's a lot of uh, plot info packed up in this bullet, you know, and it it's, it's meaningful and it goes somewhere. And in the process of it says something about who Lois is that, you know, she has to persuade her own boss, but eventually she persuades him and then she gets to to run with with her story and i just i kind of like that because not necessarily everything lois does needs to require uh superman's intervention i mean she does have a job to do you know and she's won a pulitzer prize i have to assume she's good at what she does so let's see her do it and we do it I, and i think it turned out great so i like that too and i think it's fair to say that she does have her own storyline i i believe that she does she follows the bullet from africa and gets you know sees it to completion with uh lex on the rooftop and then ultimately i believe you know she's the reason that lex ends up in in jail at the end of the movie is that she has gotten all the evidence she tells she tells him straight to his face i've proven i've proven what you've done she goes and gets the evidence uh about the bullet and how it connects back to let uh, connects back to lex corp through the science through her interview with uh, who, who was General Swanwick in Man of Steel and then became Secretary Swanwick in Batman v Superman, mm-hmm. uh, she has interviews with him, con- conducts all of the uh, the interviews, gets the information. Then she even in the Ultimate Edition we see her go to uh, Wallace's apartment and finds out all that information about how he's now a pawn of Lex and how he's connected to uh, Lex Luthor. And so I really. As a Lois fan and as just a, a fan of film and, and and seeing, you know, women get prominent parts of these movies, um, I really enjoy that. I like that she does have something separate from Superman's story and how she's the one who is 
I, I, I like, I guess, in this part of Lois's uh, characters that sometimes she, you know, is referred to as, you know, Mad Dog Lane. She's you know, she's going to get attached to a bone. She's not going to let it go. But I, I really I like that aspect of, you know, we get to see some of that in the movie is that she she knows something's up with this bullet and she wants to figure out what it is and she doesn't let up and she follows it to, to until she gets the truth until she gets the answer. So um, I, I really enjoy that part of of Lois's character and her storyline in this movie. Right, and it's so. not even, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, well, um, and that's, that's great, but suppose just hypothetically, cause obviously there's really no way to know, but what if she wasn't able to persuade Perry about, investigating this bullet would she have dropped it or do you think she she would have uh, kept going there's no right answer i just looking for your opinion well i think the answer is in man of steel perry tells her basically like um drop this story the people aren't ready to hear about this superpowered alien and she she goes around perry to get that out to try to track down clark she goes to woodburn and sort of leaks it to him in order to get that information to Clark so that Clark will then meet up with her later. Uh, so I think she is a character who, uh, the kind of reporter where she's going to try to prove it to Perry and Perry. What I like about uh, Perry in this movie is that it, it, there is a certain line with him. You have to prove it. You have to get the truth. I think nowadays in our current climate, Anybody can anybody can write something. Anybody can put something on, on the Internet. Anybody can have a story with 10 anonymous sources and it can't be proven, but everybody's going to buy it and you'll get a thousand retweets. And then you'll have to put a little retraction if the story is false and nobody will retweet that one. So I appreciate that Perry White is a guy who is, has a lot of ethics and you have to prove it to him. He even like uh, won't pass the, the, the love note to Superman to, to get, you know, that Lois tries to get Superman's attention before he gets to the, to the Senate hearing. And, uh, and, and Perry's like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So I think that there is uh, an ethical line that they have to follow as journalists. And I really appreciate that, that they show them as good reporters. Uh, but I will, I will say that if Lois thinks that she is on the right path to the truth, she'll do what she can to, uh, to get there. One of the things I like about the way her story is structured is that her quest with the um, the terrorist and 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 Nairobi, and then investigating the bullet afterward, its origin, everything. In her mind, this is not related whatsoever to Clark or Superman or whatever. She's just doing her job. She's doing her job. She's finding out this is really cool mystery. You know, why is the government supplying this stuff? It's not until Swanwick says LexCorp, yeah. and then she mentally connects the fact that Superman rescued her, that she realizes that this entire movie is happening because of Lex. Um, and I think that's when the audience starts to clue in on that as well, just just how deep his 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 talents go into the the story and what all is going on in it. Um, but yeah, she she portrays all of that for us. And I think I think the only misstep and it's not necessarily her fault, but her only misstep really is that when she sees Superman on the night that he dies on the balcony, she doesn't tell him just how much he's being manipulated. Uh, instead, she chooses to help him emotionally and address his confusion and his self-doubt that he's feeling at that particular time. Um, but I think that if um, 
if she had said something else on that balcony, Superman might have been able to make a more informed choice about what to go from there. But that's 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 just a what if. Hmm. Well, the uh... <laughs> that's actually a really good point. Actually, I. I was trying to think of like a logical way I could rebut that, but you're right. That would have been a good a good moment to to bring that up. Then again, though, I mean, you know, thinking back on it, you know, how many times have you had something important that you need to tell somebody, but you decide to wait until later because eh, it looks like they got other stuff going on right now. Right. So, I don't know. It, I could see it either way, to be honest with you. But yeah, at least for the purposes of the movie and the how it should have ended uh, faction of of viewers, that yeah, it, it is kind of it is kind of obvious. I'll, I'll give you that. So, um, wow. All right. So uh, to get back into the synopsis, uh, it says Diana Prince eventually returns the drive to Bruce. <laughs> While decrypting the drive uh, back in the Batcave, Bruce dreams of a post-apocalyptic world where he leads a group of rebels against a totalitarian Superman. So that may be a good start, stopping point just like right there. Um, the nightmare sequence. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was paying attention to this because I was trying to figure out exactly what happened. It just starts while he's staring at the computer screen, and it ends while he's staring at the computer screen, and then Flash comes out of nowhere, and I'm trying to figure out, did Bruce actually experience that nightmare? If he did, how did he experience it? How did Flash come back right at that particular moment? I was just trying to confuse like what exactly happened there. Uh, and the thing is, I mean, it's kind of hard to know. And I mean, you know, what I said was I wanted to keep, you know, the discussion as re related to Man of Steel and Batman v Superman as possible. Just keep it as close to those uh, as we can. But there are times when the narrative itself wants to kind of go beyond that. And so this is one of those times. And, you know, it seems kind of cheap to say, well, I'm sure we're going to find out in the future and then move on to something else. But I mean, it's just we don't really know it, it, what I'm, what I've been kind of afraid of is I'm kind of from the Jerry Ordway school of Superman portrayals where, you know, you can portray Superman as a do-gooder and there's not really going to be too much of a problem with that. But when you show Superman going rogue in some kind of a way, it's really hard to come back from that just because once people accept on a psychological level that it's possible for this to happen, they're going to spend the rest of their days looking over their shoulder, waiting for it to happen again. And so if what we're supposed to believe is that uh, the, the story is eventually going to go in a, a gods among us type of direction where Superman is kind of dark overlord of the whole planet... Or maybe he's the sub-overlord under Darkseid. Yeah, like a son of Darkseid kind of thing. Yeah, then, you know, look, that may or may not make for an interesting story, but I don't know how you come back from that. You know, like, I, they've gone out of their way to to set these stories up in a, in a pretty grounded and pretty realistic and pretty real-world type of uh, setting. 
And I'm sorry, in the real world, I mean, look, the jury can can decide whichever way they want. There's There are entire swaths of the American public that will always believe that O.J. Simpson did it, you know? Or there are entire swaths of the American public that believe that Casey Anthony belongs in friggin' prison, if not worse, you know? And on and on down the line, you know... When you cross that line, it's kind of hard to walk it back. And we know they have to walk it back at some point, so... Or, God help it. I hope they they, they would want to walk something like that back. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's... But once you cross the line, you know, if whether you do or you don't walk it back, you're going to end up in a place that's just not very good. You know, and I... You know, honestly... Okay, help. we're here. Um, This does kind of lead into... One, as much as I enjoy this movie, and I think it's like a this perfect two-part story companion piece with Man of Steel, it does leave me with a lot of concern about where things are ultimately going to go with Superman in the in, in the DCEU. Because mm-hmm. even if they never go in a Gods Among Us type of direction, they still have other storytelling challenges in as much as at the end of the movie, as far as the funeral uh, goers are concerned, that was Clark Kent's body that they buried. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing for Superman to die and then come back. You know, I mean, we've all, I, you know, people can believe in that, but it would be pretty hard for people to believe that they buried Clark Kent at the same time that Superman died. Then Superman comes back to life and Hey, here's Clark. You know, I mean, I, I don't see how that, I mean, I'm not criticizing because I do think that the death of Superman is the perfect way, the only way, actually, that this movie could have ended. And so I, I go with it for that reason. It's the perfect thematic re- uh, resolution to every conflict, like every major conflict in this film. And so that's great. I don't have a problem with it there. But in terms of what where that leaves the ball going forward, that I have concerns about. So I'm just going to turn the mic over to one of you two. Well, I don't really have much concern about it personally because I I remember seeing an interview with Zack Snyder where somebody asked him, you know, did you know how you're going to resurrect Superman when you killed him in Batman v Superman? And he was like, yeah, of course we did. (laughs) You know, like they have an idea of what they're going to do in Justice League um, before Batman v Superman comes out. I mean, I've read interviews with Chris Terrio, who is the screenwriter for Batman v Superman and Justice League. And he's done all this research about uh, the Atlanteans and the Amazons and uh, all sorts of like uh, effects for the Flash. Like he's he's done all of this crazy, awesome research into these grandiose topics. And he seems really smart. And so I have a feeling that if he wrote that a certain way, he would have a reason you know, to come out of it, he would, he would be able to connect those dots at the end. Um, and, and I, I have a lot of faith and trust in the, the resolution of all this. I think they've probably, if, if they're talking about, you know, sound waves or whatever it is, you know, uh, Tesla and, and things like that for the flash, I have a feeling they they're going to be able to handle, Oh, well, how are people going to deal with Clark Kent coming back to life? Like I'm, I have a feeling that they've thought these things through, but of course I don't know. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I, I think that if they have gone to the point of killing him, they, they will have, I mean, you almost have to, as a writer, I would think that you would have to think you would, 
before you even write Superman and Clark are dead, you have to be able to figure out how are, how am I going to bring them back? So I that that's that's my feeling on it. I have no question that they have a conclusion in mind. Um, we're left in the situation of not knowing what that conclusion is um, until the Justice League film or films um, comes out. Because rewatching for this, I was struck by the idea. Okay, so we have this scene of a wasteland mm-hmm. and Batman, um, you know, shooting down people with Superman badges on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how do we get from here to there? Is this the future that we're seeing? Is this a future that we're going to try to prevent? Do we expect to see this world in Justice League or in the sequel to Justice League? Obviously, we don't at this point, we don't know anything about the story of Justice League beyond him gathering the people. Mm-hmm. But f- what's this what's the second and third act of that story? what What is the rest of the film going to do? Is it going to take us all the way to this point? It seems like that's a lot of story for one film, so maybe it's going to be the sequel. So, yeah. And you also have um, Batman and Lois. Batman finds out from Flash and this that Lois is the key. And sometime between now and this scene, Batman has taken Lois from Superman, according to Superman. Right. Um, And that goes in the evil Superman goes back to Flash saying in the time travel scene, you're right about him. You've always been right about him. You need to fear him. And so then I was thinking, okay, well, what about all of the all of the conclusion of the story in this installment? You know, the resolution of coming to grips with Superman being a good person. Is that really all going to come apart or is there some going to be some sort of like, you know, dark side control storyline or or what? Um, so there, you're right, Madness. There are a lot of questions and I think in this one five-minute piece, we get the – and the videos that one of them watches later, we get the subtitle of the film. We get the Dawn of Justice aspect of the film. This is very much a two-movie story that teases more to come in a sequel. So it's almost like this is the two-part Superman story, and then there's going to be Justice League stories. Right. Can I throw it? Can I throw out some thoughts really quickly? I'll, I'll try to keep them brief. Um, John, you mentioned that the Flash comes in and says, "Fear him." Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's talking about Superman. He could be talking about Darkseid. He could be talking about something else. We don't know. Uh, but I, I think it's it, the nightmare sequence is used as a way to further Bruce's uh, animosity and his revenge towards Superman. Uh, and also, I, I think you're right in terms of the nightmare sequence being a possible future. We don't know if that is the future, but I think, and this is kind of that timey winey time travel stuff. If the Flash comes back and gives that message to Bruce, does that then cause uh, a chain of events that prevents that future from ever occurring? Uh, so I, I think that there's <laughs> there's a lot of questions there. Uh, you also, uh, I think somebody brought up the idea of did Bruce feel what was happening in that future. And I think it's tough because the the visuals sort of lend itself to that being the case that maybe he did in that future 
and in the past or the present, whatever it is, did experience what happened to him because he, uh, the way Ben Affleck plays it, he, he holds his hand to his chest um, when he wakes up. And uh, that that's kind of connecting back to the fact that Superman sort of puts his hand through his chest and I, I guess either rips his heart out or does something to kill him. Uh, so I, I, I did hear that the, I want to say it was like the concept artist, somebody, the storyboard artist maybe of Batman v Superman uh, did an interview. Uh, I think it was the Hall of Justice podcast where he he kind of insinuated the fact that that sequence is not a dream. So there is that. Um, cause I think there was some talk about whether it was a dream or if it was real. Uh, I happen to believe it was real and that it was a possible future. Uh, but I, I think that, that, I think the fact that the flash comes back and gives that message, which is the greatest message in all of comic book storytelling, <laughs> Superman storytelling, that Lois Lane is so important that the flash has to bust through time to get into the Batcave to deliver the message that Lois Lane is the key, uh, the greatest thing in the history of the world. Uh, but I, I do think that we'll probably see more of that in Justice League. So just to clarify what you said, Rebecca, Whenever Flash says, you're right about him, you've always been right about him, fear him, the him that Flash is referring to might not be the him that Batman in turn understands it and that we as the audience understand it to be, which yes. is Superman. Yes. Well, that ties into the idea that he came back too soon. Uh, yeah, possibly, yeah. So he might be giving a message to Bruce that Bruce is not ready to hear yet, and so he misinterprets it. I, I I would agree with that statement. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Well, um, I've got really nothing to contribute to, to any of that beyond what I've already said, so I'll just say big, juicy steak, and we can <laughs> move right along. But there is this kind of warmongering scene uh, that happens between Bruce and Alfred a little bit later after that scene. Basically, Alfred basically calls Bruce out. Look, dude, I know you've been you've been BSing me here. So, uh how about you just tell me the truth? So, Bruce lays it all out there. Lex Luthor's going to import some kind of rock or mineral or something into Metropolis. I'm going to steal it and I'm going to use it to kill Superman. And he says this this line that it was the line heard around the internet, but uh, basically, he says, if there's even a 1% chance that this guy could be a threat, we have to treat that as an absolute certainty. Now, that's not a verbatim quote from this really infamous thing that Donald Rumsfeld said back in like 2003 or something like that. Was it Rumsfeld or was it Cheney? Oh, it was Cheney? Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. But it, okay. it, was, it was some sort of political, governmental kind of figure. I didn't know the quote, but I heard that, and I was like, that is such a post-9-11 attitude. Yeah. Well, there you go. And yeah, I mean, that was said not very long after 9-11, so that's that's pretty on point. And, but, you know, but, isn't it, but isn't it also a very Batman thing for him to have said? Because Batman is notorious for, you know, you see it in, like, I think the Justice League Doom animated movie and some of the stories where Batman worries so much about the power that the justice league has he creates plans for how to take down each of them in case they they all get out of control so i i look at that and i i guess i see it two ways i see it as a, a meta reference to the real world but then i also see it as batman's always doing this stuff 
he's super paranoid. And so he, he's going to have a backup plan and on how to get rid of Superman in case Superman does become a tyrannical figure in the future. I think, though, that there's a big difference between having a contingency plan in your back pocket versus actively pursuing a method to murder someone just because you think he might be dangerous. That That's a very good point. Well, and, you know, and look, be that as it may, I mean, one of the, what I kind of took from that was everybody knows how popular Batman is among, among the public. I mean, I think it would, it's probably not an exaggeration to say he's actually more popular than Superman. Now people can lament that all they want, but it is nevertheless, I think probably true. And so what Zack Snyder and... Chris Terrio seemed to want to do, and Ben Affleck appears to have been on board with that. What they seem to want to do is position Batman kind of almost as like a, a sub villain in this movie for a good part of the runtime. And an easy way to do that, I think, is to take this really popular character that most people really gravitate toward for whatever reason and basically give him an unpopular viewpoint and maybe even say some unpopular things, you know, like for everything else that, you know, people may want to say about president Bush's or George W. Bush's administration, whether they love it or whether they hate it, it pretty much was defined by nine 11 and the, the war in Iraq and basically the larger war on terrorism. I mean, I think those are probably the main things that that administration has has been and will be remembered for. And whoever it was that said that line, whether it was it was Cheney or Rumsfeld or whoever, I mean, n- neither of those guys have exactly stellar reputations among the American public. And so I think it's actually kind of ballsy in a way to basically take a direct quote of something that freaking insane and put it in the mouth of one of America's, currently, one of America's most popular fictional characters. I mean, that is balls. And I I kind of like that, not just, this is not to speak of the fact that, actually, you know what, I don't think I want to go into that, in, in, into that territory. But suffice it to say, um, yeah, this, <laughs> this is a completely insane idea to have, and to put it in Batman's mouth, well, number one, it kind of reinforces how insane the idea is in the public mind, I think. Also kind of puts Batman in that same camp. And that's risky. And I really admire Snyder and Terrio for having the courage to do that. Because, guys, if I were to ever write a movie that has Batman in it, rest assured, he would never even come remotely close to saying anything just that absurd. He, he just wouldn't. You know, so so if we know nothing else, we know those those guys are braver than I am. And honestly, that was the most that I took from it. So someone else can talk. But I like what Rebecca said earlier, and I I, I didn't mean to sound maybe dismissive of it because I no, think the no, biggest no, difference I, you between made a good point. well, the difference is just a matter of degrees. It is a very Batman stance if we scale it back a little bit. Um, that he does make contingency plans to take out his his friends. That's there, there. There's a certain amount of paranoia that is built into the character, at least for the last ten years or so of his in, of, of his interpretation. Um, and since we'd have that Batman having gone down a dark path, it would make sense that his paranoia and his fear of 
more bad stuff happening would have also increased to an irrational standpoint. Because if you're, I mean, that statement, if there's a 1% chance of something bad, we have to treat it as a certainty. That represents all of the worst aspects of humanity that we are still in this day and age trying to fight against. I mean, that is the essence of bigotry right there. That is the essence of prejudice. You think something's going to happen because maybe you or someone you know had a bad experience and you're putting that bad, you're associating that bad experience with a category. And therefore, anything in that category also must be treated as probably going to be bad. That's a terrible attitude to have. But that's where he is. Yeah, and it, it's also indicative of his state of mind at that point. I think a Batman, like, say, in Just, Justice League prob- probably wouldn't think about that kind of stuff now or, or in the future of Justice League. But for Batman v Superman, it's a good indication of where he is. When I was talking just now, how was I coming across? Was I coming clear clearly? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I can okay. agree. Because mm-hmm. when you were doing your um, last moment, Magnus, a lot of what you said, I not a lot of it, but there was some digital distortion hmm. and I was going to maybe drop off the call and reboot my router real quick and come back on just to make sure that everything is working right. But if y'all are still hearing me, okay, then I'll let it go longer. See if it yeah. happens. Everybody sounds good to me. Okay. Ditto. All right. So, uh, we've touched on part of this summary already. He, meaning Bruce, is awoken from his vision by an unidentified person who is Wally West, also known as, uh, sorry, Barry Allen, also known as The Flash, this unknown person, who warns him of Lois Lane's crucial role in the future and urges him to find the others before vanishing. Wayne later, later discovers that Luther is also investigating metahumans. One of them is Prince herself, who is shown in a photo taken during World War I which we kind of haven't talked about. Do you guys want to get into that now, or do you want to save it for later? I just love that not only is it Wonder Woman and it's Chris Pine, but, like, it's the characters from the movie. Yeah. Which I had not expected that to be the case. Yeah, I I like the idea that these movies uh, build on each other and sort of inform each other. And so I I was glad that they because I think Wonder Woman might have been filming at the time of I I guess it makes sense that they were they had started filming at the time of like post-production and and BBS. And so uh, they were able to drop that in. And I I, I just like the, the fact that like they're not they don't depend on each other, but I think they make each movie stronger. So like Man of Steel informs Batman v Superman, uh, the effects of Superman's death and Batman v Superman informs Suicide Squad and the creation of the Suicide Squad and and the uh, the time that they're in. They're in the death of Superman at that point. And then Wonder Woman is uh, is is built upon through Batman v Superman. And I think going backwards, I think the Wonder Woman movie and the importance of that picture makes Batman v Superman a little stronger. So I like the way that they have done this to where the movies all sort of uh, build each other up. Agreed. I haven't seen uh, Wonder Woman, so I can't really say too much about that. But yeah, I, I agree with you. So um, when we uh, when we leave that um, gala party, that's when we go into because Clark leaves that party to go save someone, right. which again, he's having to choose what good to do. 
Is he going to choose to pursue Bruce Wayne and figure out what's going on with that? Or is he going to go and save these people in Mexico? There's a, there's a cost there with his choice. And he has, he makes a choice of which one to pursue, um, which one matters more. But that segues us into a sort of montage that explores the notion of how our world would care about Superman what our what our opinions would be about him and there are all these questions that are being asked and all these suspicions that are being raised and you have kind of both sides of the argument presented and while all of that philosophizing is happening Mm -hmm. superman saving people right superman saves these people superman saves those people superman saves those people and all he's doing is trying to do good and yet the news media is trying to figure out if he even exists. And there's a character, I think his name is Vitral Gandhi, who gets to what I see as the heart of the issue. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And I like June Finch's response because I forget, I know they pulled a real personality, I don't know who it was, um, asking, must there be a Superman? And her position is, there is. Yeah. So you you can debate him all you want. But he's a reality that we have to deal with. Yeah. Well, there was, I don't think this person's ever named, but during that little montage, there was somebody who who said that, you know, look, all religions believe in some kind of a messianic figure. And I don't think that's actually true, actually, but whatever. Anyway, not to split hairs over the guy's point. What he's saying is it would, you know, if that's the interpretive model, you through which you choose to view Superman, the only logical thing that you can follow that up with is to say that this is somebody who is beyond our sense of uh, right and wrong. He's higher than politics. He's higher than law. And so this is somebody that, you know, from, I guess, not just a like a practical standpoint, like how would you arrest Superman, but I mean from like a philosophical standpoint, truly is a, literally above the law. And, you know, I that it, it's kind of strange to think that, you know, that I, I think that's a very cogent argument. And I I don't want to get like too civil war here, but it does kind of make me think that, you know, if somebody like Superman and I and it, it's easiest to put this in the context of Superman simply because he's an alien already, as opposed to Spider-Man, who's yeah, he's got powers, but he's still human. And so is he really above our laws? Well, I don't know. I don't think he is, but Superman, it's a little bit more complicated, you know, and I kind of like, I guess, the, the dialectic of it, you know, where you, you have this conversation, but, you know, I don't, I mean, I honestly don't know, like, what, what the real end, end goal of that really would have to be, like, what, Superman just doesn't have to obey our laws, like, at all, ever, for anything, it it just does it, it kind of makes you wonder. It, but the thing about that sequence that works for me is that you get that point of view and all of these other ones, and they kind of pile up on top of each other. And it's kind of weird, you know. The movie does a really good job of the the media white noise that there's so much information out there that there's no truth anymore in a weird kind of way, you know. Yeah, and, and the different opinions in the movie that are, that are expressed about Superman and his place in the world, I, I really like them because I, I think kind of the point that I, I heard from what I got out of what you said was that nobody has a right answer because 
is there a right answer? Like what I, I was even just trying to think about like, well, how would we react if this really happened in the real world? It would be a tough thing because Superman wants to do good and he can help us. But then you have all these problems, you have all these uh, legalities, all of these logistics to take care of. Um, but what I think is so strong about the movie in terms of the different opinions and, and why I don't have any, any problem with the, the politics of it is that it gives every opinion that could be possibly is expressed. Everyone has their say in it. And so I, I like all of those different uh, news reports and those interviews, like the the Senator Finch with Charlie Rose, that kind of stuff. I like that all of the different possible uh, opinions about Superman could be expressed in the movie without um, everything feeling really judgmental or biased or anything like that. It, it it just puts it out there. Here are the different ways that we could address this, and they do it in, I, I think, a pretty fair and balanced way. So, wow, what you're saying is the fictional media that we see in this movie is more journalistic than the real-world media. I think that's uh, <laughs> quite possibly what I'm what I'm saying and, and, and what, I, what I like about it. <laughs> I sort of wish we handled those kinds of things uh, like that in the real world because I think – and you even see this when people talk about Batman v Superman where – I get this all the time where someone would be like, well, Batman v Superman is a bad movie and that's it. And the, and the dialogue stops right there. That's You can't talk about anything because somebody's already got their mind made up. But what I think is really great about uh, the news media and the movie is that – there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of talking about it. There's a lot of trying to ruminate on what everything means. So I think uh, the the real world would benefit with a little more discourse, a little more civil discourse and and uh, communication and a conversation about all of the issues that we face. That's all I'm one, saying. One might even suggest that whenever a viewer doesn't understand the movie, they exhibit it by how they discuss the movie. Like the the themes of this movie are how to be a good person, how to be balanced in your life. And yet the, the the discussion about the film seems to take a slant of not really being very balanced and not really being very much good person-y. Unfortunately, well, that can't the, be the case. <laughs> a lot of the objection I've heard to, uh, well, specifically Batman and Superman, people seem to be a little friendlier to Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman. But at least for Batman and Superman, the the... Objections seem to mostly be, he's not Christopher Reeve. He's not Christian Bale. That seems to be the totality of their objection. If there was somehow a way to put Christopher Reeve and Christian Bale in this movie and have them as Superman and Batman, I get the idea these people would be just fine with it, you know? And I don't really know what to say to that, other than it's kind of psychotic. Unfortunate. Okay, or, or unfortunate. Yeah, that's probably... <laughs> well, you, of the two of us, you were always the more polite one, let's be real. <laughs> um, all right, so... At a congressional hearing, as Finch questions Superman on the validity of his actions, a bomb goes off and kills everyone present except Superman. And this includes, by the way, Senator Patrick uh, Leahy. Is that his name? Is that how I you pronounce think, it? I think that's how you say it. Yeah, so uh, yet another movie... You can't really call it a Batman movie at this point, but yet another movie that has Batman in it, guest starring Patrick Leahy. So huh. I think I, I think that's really cool that they always bring him back for Batman movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and this is like several different directors now. I mean, I don't know about Tim Burton, but Joel Schumacher for sure, twice, um, Christopher Nolan at least once, and now here with 
with Zack Snyder. So, yeah, it's it's a real thing. And we get this moment. I, you know, I understand that the point of this scene was to cut Superman off before he even had a chance to respond. I understand that. But I kind of would have wanted to know what would Superman have said in his own defense, you know? We'll never know. But... And I and actually, I, I can't help thinking, just to kind of tangent for a sec, I can't help thinking that part of the reason that Superman didn't really speak a whole lot in that scene is because what I've read is that Zack Snyder just... He's... he's He, he, he seems to think that it, it's kind of silly for superheroes in their outfits to stand around talking to each other, which... I don't. I mean, I don't know where I found that quote, but I read that somewhere, and that really, assuming that this wasn't a completely bogus story, Zack Snyder really did say that, and presumably he said that just as he was going into pre-production on Justice League. So, I don't know. Funny, I guess. That but. seems that seems like one of those quotes that it has been taken uh, out of context. I don't I don't know the context of it, but uh, I would imagine like the the whole uh, the Batman rape thing. That came out one time. That was a whole that the whole context of that was in regards to Watchmen, and that got taken completely out of context. Wait, Batman rape? What? Uh, well, there was a there was a quote. Uh, I, I don't know the specifics of it. I, I can't quote it verbatim, but there there was a thing that um, and basically Zack Snyder was trying to say that um, that Watchmen is so gritty and dark because of the world that Watchmen exists in. That uh, if Batman was in his in his version of Watchmen that Batman might've gotten raped or something like that. Like he was trying to make the point that Watchmen is that drastic. Oh. It's that okay. it's that gritty. It's that dark. It's that, and I hate to use the word dark. So I'm going to re- retract that statement, uh, that it's that grimy and nasty that, that, that would be the case. And people took that out of context saying, Oh, well, Zack Snyder would want Batman to get raped. But that's not what he said. That was completely misinterpreted. Um, so if you go back and look at the interview, it makes much more sense when you actually read the the full thing. Okay. Uh, but but I I don't really like even if he did say that, who cares? He had a movie where Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman are in scenes together talking to each other in costume. So yes. even if he even if he really said that, and even if that was the context of it that that was accurate and true and real. Who cares? He still made a movie where they were talking to each other in costume. So I don't I don't even uh, really mind that kind of stuff personally. Well, and he's I, also directing Justice League where, look, we've all seen those trailers. There's a lot of dialogue in uniform. So, yes. Yeah. And it's even more characters in costume talking to each other. Right. So going uh, into that hearing, um, Clark goes and sees his mom. Yes. Or. Maybe he calls his mom. I, th- I think this is the one, though. This is the scene where she says, be their angel, be their savior, or be none of it. The world doesn't owe you a damn thing. Oh, no, you don't owe the world a damn thing. Sorry. You never did. Um, yeah, that was quite and, a controversial line. And it's crazy because that's called parenting. Yep. It's called helping your child understand all the sides of the issue and giving them what they need to make the, make their own decision. It's it's what pissed me off about the reactions to the Jonathan Kent stuff in Man of Steel. Yeah. I've gone on about that before because you have a complex situation. You have a son with 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 
questions that no one has ever had to answer to the degree that he has to answer them. And the best you can do is help him see all the sides of the situation. So she gives him agency here. She gives him the agency to make his own decision. Do what you feel is best. You're not going to let anybody, you're not going to let me down either way. I'm your mom. I'm going to support you. You're trying to do the best thing. And that's all I can ask. And if you want to stop saving them and just go live a life of quiet, that's fine too. But well, he goes to the, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say, this is, this is the kind of thing I could picture a mother saying to her son. It could only have come from Martha. I mean, yeah, back in Man of Steel, Jonathan said, yeah, it may come to it that you have to let people die at some point. But, you know, now that you're out there and, and in the open, you need to, you need to nut up or shut up, you know, go out there and do your job. You know, Jonathan would would kick Superman in the butt and tell him tell him to get to work, you know, and that's not what Superman needs at that moment. You know, uh, you're I think you're you're onto something when when you say that that what he needs is basically someone to, you know, bake him some cookies and tell him it's going to be OK. You know, that's what he needs in that moment. And He's more likely to get that from Martha than he is from from Jonathan, I think. So, notwithstanding the fact that Jonathan's actually kind of dead, but and yet he still manages to speak and and he answers a different <laughs> question because you're right. This particular question he might have answered more brusquely, but he answers a different question for Clark later, which we can talk about later. But um, we get to the hearing, and I was mm -hmm. struck that Lex just sends Mercy off to her death. Could you could you go hold my seat for me? Thanks. That's a dear. She knew too much. You think you think he, he she, was a, she, she was a liability. She knew all his dirty deeds. She had to go. See, I, I didn't think of it like that. I, I was thinking of it from the standpoint that that's how little she meant to him. I mean, yeah, he maybe she could have been trusted. Maybe not. But it's whether or not or whether she could have, she was going to go in there to die just to make it look convincing. You know, and that it yeah. reminds me of the early burn era, Lex, where like. In every issue of Superman, you, when you see Lex Luthor, you see a different female assistant. Yeah. And it's just like he has – he just goes through them. Yeah. He has a cadre of them. Um, and I don't know. Maybe he just dismisses one whenever she displeases him and he gets another one right away. I don't know. Um, it's more clear in the Ultimate Edition, I think, just how much the senator knows about Lex when Lex confronts her. Yeah. Because now we've had Kahina – telling her all about what's going on um and now we've had the whole she gave she was given a script to follow and whenever she sees lex luthor and she's apprehensive of him it's not just because he insulted her in his office it's because she realizes just how deep this goes yeah, yeah the the context of the that part of it the 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 characterization of senator finch does change when you watch the ultimate edition because when she's walking down that hall and she's she's telling uh somebody else about how lex has just made them all puppets that that completely changes when you know uh, all of the stuff that he did with kahina and she eyes him like he's a rabid lion she's just like trying yeah. to keep her distance and she just she she gives some witty repartee with the you know swapping words and stuff but she knows what she's dealing with. Um, Outside of the hearing, there's this uh, big group of protesters. And <laughs> look, I, oh, okay, so you know where this is going. All right, so um, I just I love I saw the signs this time, and I just loved the signs. Oh, real? Oh, okay. All right. I thought you. I thought okay. Well, like basically, 
they're not just protesters. Some of these are very uh, pro-Superman. Some of these are very anti-Superman. But there's one anti-Superman protester in, in particular that, I'm sorry, nobody. Nobody. Zero. Nobody would ever take this guy seriously. I mean, he's he's got this uh, uh, black hoodie on, and then he's got a white uh, symbol on his chest, and then that red... I don't even know what you call it, but it's the no symbol, the circle with the the uh, diagonal line going across mm-hmm. it. So basically saying no Superman. And he's just got this very, I don't like kind of Antifa kind of look going for him. And first off, I can't picture somebody like him actually being opposed to Superman. OK, I just I, I cannot picture it. Right. But even if I could uh, picture that, you know, uh, somebody is opposed to Superman or, or somehow that he is opposed to Superman. I can't picture anybody taking this guy seriously. I mean, this guy just looks like such a candy ass. Uh, and so it's just, it, it's one of those things that like they have to put stuff in a movie for purposes of shorthand. And I, I get that. And they have this, you know, cute blonde standing right next to him and she's all smiling and looks very chipper and conservative and she's pro Superman. And I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't buy a single word of this. I just, I don't, I don't buy either of those two. <laughs> what well, what I think is uh, interesting about the signs, I think one of them says, this is our world. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you, when you look back at it in terms of all the, the narrative stuff and the themes in the movie, like that one sort of, sort of busts me up. It, it breaks me a little bit because the whole thing of the movie is that Superman chooses earth as his home and, and his world, but also that Lois Lane is, the world to him. And so when I see that scene, I'm like, Oh, don't cry, Rebecca, hold it together. Um, because that's, that's the thing too, is that earthlings consider, you know, we consider earth to be our world, but for Superman, that, that becomes a different, uh, that, that means something different to him by the end of the movie. Um, so yeah, they, they do an interesting job with the signs outside the, uh, Capitol. Agreed. When he walks into the hearing and you get that close up shot of him pushing the gate. Yeah. I don't know what it is about that shot that has so much weight. I just feel like I feel like it is everything Superman is doing to not bust that thing wide open with his thumb. It's just well, like ultimate control of his strength and power. Well, that's the thing, right? Like for me, that shot is very uh, meaningful to me because Superman could just fly right o- over it. He could he could super jump over it. He could fly over it. But he opens it like a human. He does it like everybody else in that room would have done. And I, to me, that's a very humble thing for him to do. He's a super-powered being that everyone in that room is very concerned about and probably a little bit scared of. But he does that, I think, as a sign to say, hey, I'm just like you. I'm just like everybody in this room. So I, 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 I'm really glad that they chose to make that a very intentional close-up shot of the way he opens that door. Well, and I'm not trying to harp on the extras here. I'm really not. But I just noticed another one as I'm watching this as as we're talking here. And so Superman enters uh, enters the room. And like you were saying, everyone there, they're not necessarily like afraid of him per se. I mean, some of them are, some of them aren't. It, it just kind of depends. But there's basically pandemonium going on. And not pandemonium. There's whatever. It, the point is he's he's electrified the room just by showing up he hasn't even opened his mouth 
and you can see that you know all of these people are just kind of buzzing around there except for this one girl who she's wearing like this white jacket and these black pants she's on the right side of the screen she is cool as a cucumber it's like she barely even <laughs> notices that superman's even come into the room and it's like is she the one that was having like a big old laugh conversation with a guy right before he walked in and yeah and yeah. she she uh, eyeballs him as he comes in. Okay, all right. So he's her. Okay, now what were we talking about? And and so uh, <laughs> it's, I noticed this. I noticed her like just the first time I saw this movie. And you know how it is. It's like sometimes like it, it's the Star Wars effect where this background thing that shouldn't mean anything and shouldn't really call all that much attention to itself. For some reason, you're just zoomed in right in on it and you notice it every time and. Sorry to keep derailing you guys. I'll try to stop. No, that's pretty funny. I'll have to go back and look for her. Yeah. Um, I, I've i heard it said that the sequence of the senator, when she begins her speech and she's derailed by the glass that's sitting beside her, mm-hmm. I've heard it said that that is stretched out a little bit too far, that maybe they could have condensed her. But I feel like... I feel like she's wrestling with her realization of what Lex is and her fear of Lex that's now starting to rise. She's just heard that he manipulated Kahina. Mm -hmm. And now she's seeing that he has manipulated her very presence in this room. Lex has changed what she has to drink there. And that's that's a bit more intimate and close to home than she was really that prepared for. Right. Um, but I did want to ask our video editing specialist, Rebecca, <laughs> what do you think about that sequence where she's talking then she stammers and she tries to talk again and she comes to a full stop? Do you think that was edited at the appropriate pace or would you have done it differently? You're uh, very generous to call me a, a specialist. I appreciate that. Uh, I think it's perfect. It's the execution of that is great. It, it's masterful uh, suspense because everyone, um, well, I, I don't want to say everyone, but when I saw it in the theaters, I, if I hadn't mentioned, I saw it 15 times in the theaters. So most Jeez. of the time, so most of the time, you're putting Zack Snyder's kids through college, girl. Well, well you know, you know, I, I try to support the things that I love, um, which makes me forgetting about Anatoly Kanaev uh, getting uh, in himself in some trouble at the Mar- Martha rescue. It makes me ashamed of myself. Uh, but the the way that people saw that scene when I would watch it with other people, having already kind of known what was coming, it was very interesting because. There's a little bit of comedy there where the 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 glass or the mason jar turns around and you see what it says. It says, you know, Granny's peach tea. And so people chuckled at that. Because you realize it's a glass of piss right there. Yeah. So pe- people uh, were smart enough to connect the dots back to that earlier scene. And so they laughed about it. And then you have those few seconds where, like, you're held, like, you're on the edge of your seat. Like, oh, my gosh, what is going to happen? Because Senator Finch is really freaked out right now. Something is going to happen, but we don't know what is going to happen. And then the wheelchair bomb goes off and just flames go everywhere and those people who were laughing just a second before are now freaked out about what has gone down so to me 
Uh, I think that is straight up masterful suspense and the the way that it 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 kind of lures you in with that little bit of comedy and then it turns its head on you. I mean, that's that's Hitchcockian. Like that's great. So I think, you know, you can you can tear down the movie all you want, but I for me, I don't see how you can uh critique that sequence any other way than to say that had me on my edge uh the edge of my seat. I I do have a question for you. Um there are basically three people, at least I think there are three people in, in the room who suspected or maybe at least just wondered, like, what is about to happen. One of them, obviously, is Senator Finch. And we know that one of them, at the moment, it it, it was too late to really do anything, was Superman. But did Mercy, do you think, do you think she had some inkling of where this might be going because she did cast that sort of doubtful look back at the door like hey where's the boss lex needs to be here and he's not i Person- think her go ahead john i think her wondering where lex is informs finch's apprehension i don't think let mercy knew what was going to happen but i think that while finch is getting freaked out by this glass she happens to notice that lex is gone and mercy's confused yeah, and that informs that. Yeah, I don't I don't think that Mercy knew when she was going into that room that something was going to go down. I think she did get freaked out when she realized Lex hadn't come in. Okay. And then we the camera slows way down after the explosion and you see Superman completely taken aback by what's going on here and we just get this immense sadness and pain and regret on his face as the camera is slowed down and the debris and the flames are slowly falling through the air Mm -hmm. and Superman couldn't have done anything to stop it. Well, actually he could have, and that was the thing, you know, all it would have, hmm? go ahead. I was going to say all it would have taken was a quick zap of x-ray vision, but who would Uh, think to look for that? Actually, he couldn't because in the, in the ultimate edition, they talk about how the wheelchair was lined with lead. Oh, they did. yeah, I must have missed that. Jeez. Yeah, okay. that's that's one of those things that I really wish they had put in the theatrical version. That would have changed a lot of people's opinions on that scene um, because they they do talk about how the the I think it's Jeanette Clyburn. I think is the character that Jenna Malone plays. She's like in the comics. She's like a Star Labs lady, uh, a very lesser known character. I didn't even know who she was, uh, but she tells Lois that the the wheelchair was lined with lead, and that and Lois connects to that's why he couldn't see it. That's why he couldn't stop it. Uh, yeah, because so, the Star Labs, she's confused by the lead because that reduces the impact. Yeah. Why would you shield it and reduce the impact? Right. And then Lois is like, oh, but the lead would stop Superman, which makes her think about whatever he said. I'm afraid I didn't see it because I wasn't looking for it because Superman interpreted the events the same way that we all did. And we first saw them as why didn't he see it with X-ray vision? Right. And he's, he didn't know. He's, he's hating himself for it. But it was all schemed. Yeah. Well, the. As all of that's going on, there's this moment, and it, this this same moment actually popped up in the trailers. But uh, there's there's this moment where Bruce is watching everything that's happening on TV, and he gets pretty torqued off about it. And 
it's not really clear if, like, does he think Superman did this, or is he torqued off because Superman could have stopped this but didn't because he's a dummy, or what? But, you know, whatever whatever we're supposed to interpret from his facial expression, that moment pops up in the pops up in the trailer and more than anywhere else in the movie it just looks the way he's dressed the way just ben affleck's natural look he just looks so bob kane to me you know and different actors have a different i guess artistic style that they seem to live within and affleck when he when he's playing bruce he just seems very bruce wayne as drawn by bob kane if you buy into the idea that bob kane ever drew anything and i'm not really interested in pursuing that but at least as credited to bob kane bruce wayne this is basically it you know and there's not a deeper meaning of that it's just it's just screams bob kane to me that was my thought when ben affleck was first cast because i'm sure we've all read at least some of that golden age batman oh yeah and ben affleck if somebody wanted to draw a comic of ben affleck in the golden age style it would look exactly like that He's he's very Bruce Wayne. Like when you look at him, he he looks like Bruce Wayne. But yeah, it is a little bit ambiguous exactly how he interprets what's going on. Because either he thinks Superman caused the explosion, he's blaming it on Superman, right? Or just the fact that Wally Keefe, the guy who he realizes is not getting his checks and hates him for it and hates Superman and hates him, well, more him because he doesn't care he hates Superman. Now that guy has died because of Superman's presence there. And so it's an ultimate loss of this person that he really thought he was supporting and saving all this time. Either way, this increases Bruce's hatred of Superman, and that's what inspires him to go after The Rock, which is exactly what Lex planned. That's a really good point that I had not thought of before, that Wallace uh, Wallace is another, is another person, another personal connection to Bruce that is taken away from him, and he attributes that to Superman. You know, he had uh, his his Wayne Financial building that uh, was destroyed and his his employees there were killed. And Wallace, the guy he saved in Metropolis, the the one guy it seemed like he, he was able to rescue and, and save in that situation. Now he's gone. So, yeah, that's a, That's really uh, an interesting way to look at it is that it's just another thing that Superman has seemingly taken from Bruce. And I, I, I like that it sort of adds a little more ammunition to his anger. I do as well. And, and and I'm not trying to move away. It's just I'm watching little bits of the movie as as we're talking here and as I'm listening. And there's this moment uh, after, you know, Bruce finds the uh, clippings and after he gets he stares defiantly at the uh, at the TV screen, we cut back to uh, the uh, I, I guess this is the Senate building. And there's this blink and you miss it moment where Superman lands right beside the steps outside of the uh, courtroom as all of the emergency responders and firefighters and uh, those people are, are running around do the, doing their thing. He's he's holding uh, one of the victims in his arms. And this is something we haven't really seen a ton of in these movies. Usually when Superman lands, he does that million miles an hour crash into the ground almost type of landing. And this is a little bit slower. I mean, it, it's... We, like I say, we don't see a ton of it in these movies, but as a Superman fanboy, and especially as a Superman flying fanboy, this is, it's not a big moment, but I just, I 
I love it. He just lands, and it's just really cool. So nothing really, no deeper meaning to that. I just want to throw that out there. Well, no, he's I, been, I do like, go ahead. Go, go ahead, John. Oh, go ahead. I like that moment as well because it shows that he has been able to learn how to control his abilities a little more since we last saw him in Man of Steel. He was he was having to get people to to go away from him in order to take off, and he was crash landing and and things. And he does he does do a crash landing when he uh, encounters Batman before their big fight. But I like that he's able to now have a little bit more of a gentle touch when he needs to. So I think that's a cool progression of his character just in terms of his abilities. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, every time he flies, it's a digital effect. So they have to artistically create that. And I like that Snyder or, who, or whoever's in charge of how those look. Every single one of them is a deliberate choice. You know, he, he, he can take off with a boom or he can lift off subtly and it's all very, but like you said, a, a fanboy of Superman flying and how that's depicted Every single takeoff and landing in these films has thought behind how that looks. Yeah. It's just, it's cool. And, you know, these filmmakers, they always make a big deal out of, you know, how hard it is to write Superman and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, honestly, the bar is pretty freaking low for me. If you just show the guy flying around a lot, I'm going to be happy. (laughs) And not as a cartoon. Like yeah, and not a, exactly that. Yeah, no, we uh, <laughs> do it as CGI, do it on wires, do it as back screen project, do whatever you want. All right, just don't do animation. So. I forget what it is that happened that caused me to write this. I don't because I don't think we're at the part where he goes to the mountain yet. No, because that happens later. Um, but he mentions that he's trying to do what his dad told him to do mm-hmm. at some point, mm-hmm. and. That goes back to the notion that Superman does good because of how Jonathan raised him. Mm-hmm. And this is a notion that is, especially with Smallville, 10 years of that, I think, has really been ingrained in the Superman fandom mindset is that Jonathan may, Jonathan molded Superman. His fathering, his parenting molded Superman. And that's still very, very true here. So why do we keep hearing that Jonathan's fathering was terrible? Be- because I keep hearing that, 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 that according to Man of Steel, Jonathan was a terrible father. And um, and I, I, I have issues with that. Well, I don't really have a, a very good answer for you on that. Um, this is – I mean I, I've, I've wondered on a couple of occasions, you know, like – what is it that people really expect from Jonathan Kent, you know, like in, in narrative. Right. And I've wondered a few times, you know, is it, and I'm not saying this is like absolute dogma. Okay. Just put it in the background or just tell me what you think about this. But, uh, the, the way I've always kind of viewed it is that Clark has his nature and his nature is to want to help. It's Jonathan's nurture that created Superman. You know, left to his own devices, Clark would probably just help everybody and anonymity be damned. You know, what we saw, I think, in Smallville and definitely in Man of Steel was Clark was deciding what to do, and it was Jonathan and Martha who who explained how to do it, or maybe even how not to do it. And it makes me kind of wonder, you know, the way I look at it is Jonathan is there basically to 
not so much guide Clark, but kind of direct him. You know, Clark already knows what he wants. Jonathan's just kind of there to get him pointed in the, in the right direction, and then he can kind of figure it out for himself. But if what somebody wants is for Jonathan Kent to be the architect of, of Clark's entire moral universe then I can see where maybe Man of Steel was a little bit of a letdown for him. I mean, does, does that make sense? Does that scan for you? Yeah, I, I think that some people want Jonathan Kent to be the perfect moral uh, person and that he makes no mistakes and that he can never not know the answer. And I think what's so great about the DCEU and the, this these versions of Jonathan and Martha is that I think it's very realistic. They have no clue. They can, they can, like you said, like they can help uh, point Clark in some directions. And I think they have their knowledge of the way the world works and the way human beings work and how some people are going to be really scared of Clark. So they have that that they can give to Clark as advice. But I like that they have shown them to be people who are like, I don't know what's the right answer. You have superpowers. We've never encountered this either. We're, we're just kind of doing our best to be. And I think that's, I'm not a, I'm not a mom, so I can't, uh, uh, you know, John, you might be able to speak uh, about this as a parent, but I, there, I, I assume that there are things as a parent, even if you've been doing it for a couple of years, you might not know the answer. There are always going to be things that come up where you're like, I don't know. We're going to just do our best and hope, hope we do the right thing. So I, I like that Jonathan and Martha are like, Hey, we're going to give you the advice. We're going to try to help you through this situation, but they don't know the answer. And I think that's why that some people have issues with it is that they want Jonathan. They want Martha to be able to say the exact right thing every time. And I just don't think that's realistic. Hmm. Yeah, that's where I am with it. Cause I am, my parenting philosophy is is very opposed to hiding children from things or pretending that certain things don't exist for the sake of the children's purity. Um, I don't I don't like those approaches. I'd rather educate my child and prepare children. But I was thinking about Lily when I said that because she's older. Prepare her and she's a girl and there are all sorts of extra issues that come along with that. Um, educate her, prepare her. And try to help her understand things. And and there there are so many times where I just don't know exactly how things are going to play out. But I want her to understand stuff. And, you know, we don't have to rehash Man of Steel. But what I got from Jonathan was a man who didn't understand exactly how things are going to play out. But he wanted Clark to face it with an understanding of what could happen. And be prepared for what could happen when you get older. And I don't know. There, there, there's, there's so there's so much there that we that I, I could talk about for for way too long. Um, <laughs> but um, we we get a scene in the um, movie where we're sort of in the Daily Planet, and Perry was wondering where Clark is, mm-hmm. and we pass by Jenny. And she's dictating text to someone, or maybe she's reading with somebody, I don't know. And she brings up the idea, if Superman was aware of the bombing and did nothing, was he then complicit? And not to beat a dead horse, but just continuing this idea of good versus evil. And what is good? I mean, he, he, you know, he didn't cause the bomb. He didn't know about the bomb. But could he have stopped it? 
that he since he didn't stop it, does that mean he's now an accomplice? You know, it is just questions being raised throughout this film. And I love it. Right. Okay. <clears throat> well, and I, uh, I, I must say I didn't, I, I guess I'm drawing a, a blank on like the dialogue. I mean, I, I, I think I remember the scene, but not so much the dialogue, but if you say it's in there, I'll, I'll believe you. Yeah. It's that's because I just rewatched this. Yeah. That's it. That, uh, John gave a pretty good summary of that aspect of it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, from the Wikipedia summary, uh, believing he should have... De- oh, and this is actually pretty... pretty. This fits pretty well with where we are. Believing he should have detected the bomb and frustrated by his failure to save the people, Superman goes into self-imposed exile. Batman breaks into LexCorp and steals the kryptonite, planning to use it to battle Superman by building a powered exoskeleton, creating a kryptonite grenade launcher, and also a kryptonite-tipped spear. Meanwhile, Luther enters the Kryptonian ship and accesses details of a vast technology database accumulated from over 100,000 worlds. And uh, that's a lot to chew on just right there. (laughs) Yeah, because we need to talk about the exile. We need to talk about him going to the snow and talking to Jonathan. Yeah, we do. Uh, You want to take the lead on that? I do not mind if I do. I love hearing myself talk. Thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hey, dude, I set him up. You knock him down. Um, okay. So Clark, first of all, he has that conversation with Lois on the balcony. That's never, she could have told him what was going on. She didn't. He's feeling upset. He flies away before she can really say too much. He goes up to whatever snowy place. There's Spanish being spoken. I, I, I don't know where he is. Um, but he has this vision for lack of a better word with Jonathan And Jonathan tells a story about saving the day, saving the day, saving his horses, um, and accomplishing something really good for him and his farm and his friends. But at the same time that he did that, the actions he took caused other people to suffer. He didn't know that it was going to happen. It's just kind of what happened. And um, I'm going to mute my iPad because my daughter's starting to text me for reasons that I don't want it dinging in our show. Um, but I think that what's what Superman ultimately comes to realize through Jonathan and through the other stuff in this film is that when you do your best and when you do good, there may be ramifications you didn't foresee, and that's okay. You can't beat yourself up for doing the best with the knowledge that you have at hand and other stuff happening. Um, And I think if we were doing the idealized comic book, Mm -hmm. anything's possible, Superman, he would stop every single bad thing and he would foresee the ramifications. Or once he learned about them, he would go and save that day too. And everything would always be okay because Superman saves the day. But with a more nuanced approach, Clark has to accept that either because it's an opportunity cost, he chose one good over another or because of unforeseen ramifications it's okay that you can't save everyone Hmm. well and that was you know people gripe and complain about you know the exile that superman took that really didn't seem to last all that long and to be honest i mean you know we get a couple of minutes of it and then it, it it is kind of 
it's it's almost over before it starts and i i guess i can understand you know the that aspect of you know the objection people have but what what it seems like people are saying and if either of you think i'm mischaracterizing anything here then please i want you to correct me but what it looks like is they're griping and complaining about superman discovering the hard way you can't save everybody and i mean that is especially for the for the post crisis superman i mean that is the foundational lesson that that he's got to ex- <clears throat> excuse me that he's got to accept right i would say it even extends back into the pre crisis because that's arguably the moment where superboy became superman realizing that he there's nothing he can do to save the kents it's just their time now and having to find a way to accept that but even in the post crisis you know there are certain lives that superman can't save there are certain places he can't go there are certain things he can't achieve you know and that's not a that's not a result of uh any 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 personal failing of his or uh, a lack of desire to help or or anything i mean it's just I hate to reduce it to a bumper sticker, but shit happens. <laughs> and when it does, you know, you, sometimes the best you can do is damage control. You can't save the situation. You can only limit its 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 scope. And I don't know. I mean, that's that's an important thing for Superman to understand and for anyone to begrudge him learning that lesson, which is basically what's going on here. Where are your priorities, dude? I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, that's that's never bothered me personally. Like Su- Superman's not going to be able just he physically won't be able to save everyone all the time. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's become a, a running joke on on uh, the podcast that I'm one of the co-hosts of Supergirl Radio. Like we joke about Kelly, this this character, this minor character on the show that wasn't able to be saved by Supergirl because she only had two hands. She R. could R. only Kelly. save. hashtag R.I.P. Kelly Uh, she could only save two people so she grabbed her best friends and poor Kelly poor Kelly didn't make it but that's a that's a I think that's just this thing that all superheroes have to learn that you can't you can't save everyone all the time and maybe that's why they need a Justice League maybe that's why they need uh, friends who can help them out so I yeah I've never I've never really understood why people complain about that that's that's a very Superman lesson that he would have to learn you mentioned the passage of time and how the exile is kind of over before it's even begun. I think part of the problem there is that this film covers a really long time span and we go through moments feeling like they're all connected together. Whenever really my impression is that this, the duration of this film is close to six months. Right. Um, and so he was gone for a long time. He was gone long enough that Lois was worried. Perry White was 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 mystified. Uh, it's when he first disappears, you get another joke in a movie that has no jokes. Where Perry's yeah. like, "Where Clark? Where does he go? Does he like click his heels three times and go back to Kansas?" And and Jenny just walks by. He's like, "I, I don't I don't know where he is. Perry. I'm sorry." <laughs> it's one of my favorite moments in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Jenny is all the time just humoring Perry. Like he she she doesn't know, but he always asks her ask her questions. Like she knows the answers. Um, <laughs> but going back to the mountaintop, Jonathan tells Clark that Martha made his nightmares stop. Like having her there, having her presence helped him cope with things that he did that hurt others unintentionally. And he says that she's my world. 
And that's where we get, I think, the first time that that is said. And then later Clark says it's Lois. Lois is his world. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a beautiful depiction of their relationship. But then it had me wondering about the whole portents of the future that we got from the nightmare scene. What happens to Clark, who has, you know, for lack of a better word, nightmares or inner demons, when Lois isn't there to stop them or to help him get past them? Whenever he tells Bruce, you took her from me, she was my world, or we're getting a picture of a Superman who no longer has Lois to help him cope. So is your your concern like, like, say... I don't know, 40 years in the future, Lois Lane dies a, a natural death. Would Superman then go rogue and go evil because L- Lois dies? Is that your concern? Not so much that is kind of speculating about what storylines they're going to actually tell in the near future whenever, you know, it, it is. I guess I'm exploring how the narrative is built in this particular story more than speculating of what could happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think for the uh, evil Superman in the nightmare sequence, it's more about how Batman took her from Superman. So that to me is what maybe made him evil is that he felt like someone had taken something from him. And does that make any sense? That's that's kind of how I how I see it. Um, I don't know if that answered a question at all. (laughs) Well, I thought it made sense, whatever that's worth. Well, we'll we'll go with that. (laughs) I like it. Um, one other thought I had about this, because I, I, I had so many thoughts about this scene, is that when this movie came out, the comics were coming out of a particular storytelling era where Superman was of reduced powers. It's commonly called the Truth Era because that was the name of the first arc. Um, and that storyline explored not the same kinds of themes, but I think kind of similar themes. How is a Superman going to behave whenever he's a reduced power set because now his options of how to do good and what good to do are more limited. And some of the methods and choices he makes during the course of that storyline got ridiculed as being not Superman. And my opinion is that like with this film, it's more of an exploration of how Superman would behave and what kinds of choices he would make if we didn't just assume he would always do the utmost right thing. Anyways, um, we, 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 we can move on unless there's other stuff y'all want to say about the, the scene. No, I'm ready to move on. That sounds good. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, let's see. Batman breaks into LexCorp, steals the, crypt, uh, the uh, kryptonite. And, I mean, we've kind of touched upon that quite a bit already, so... Uh, but moving right along, one of the things that does happen is Lex Luthor enters the Kryptonian ship and accesses details of a vast technology database accumulated from over 100,000 worlds. And that doesn't specifically come into play here. I get the idea that's more for the future. So, you know, if you guys want to get into that, we can. But I honestly don't really have a whole lot to say there. I, I'm okay if we move on. Yeah, um... My only thought with the whole Zod thing in the, in the Kryptonian ship and everything is that this was not necessarily part of Lex's plan. Um, he didn't know what he was going to be able to do when he found Zod. He was just trying to find a way to kill Superman. Um, but now there's all this extra stuff going on, and Doomsday comes out of it. 
but Doomsday, I think, is the one element of this entire story that wasn't planned by Lex from the beginning. I actually kind of like that now that you mentioned that it's almost like Lex just wanted to see what was in the ship and he just happened on this thing and he was like, oh, no, please tell me more. I would like to know about this thing that you're telling me about. I like that. It's almost like he discovered a new toy. <laughs> and I don't think he realized just how big that toy was going to be. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Agreed. And, you know, it does say something that, you know, how good he is at improvisation. Because they say the hardest thing to do for, you know, any criminal mastermind when they're in the process of executing their plan is to improvise. Because where does that go in their plan? But yeah, it does say something. That's how, how good he is. So... Anyway, so, uh, moving right along, later, Luther kidnaps Lois and Martha Kent, which is to say Clark's adoptive mother, to bring Superman out of exile. And in so doing, he reveals to him that he manipulated Superman and Batman by fueling their shared distrust for each other. And that's, okay, actually, no, we can go a little bit further. Luther demands that uh, Superman kill Batman in exchange for Martha's life. Superman, yeah, and that's about as far as we need to go, actually, at that point. Basically, the scene on the top of uh, Luther Corp Tower, pretty big scene, actually. And, like, the score for this scene, we haven't really talked a whole lot about the uh, music for this movie, but the score for this scene, like, this scene in particular is especially well done. But I like... There's this moment, like right after uh, Lois uh, falls falls off the uh, the roof of uh, LexCorp Tower, she flails around for a little while, but then Superman catches her, matches her speed, slows her down, and then gently takes her to the ground. There's this moment where they just kind of fly down to um, street level in, in Metropolis. And this is the kind of stuff that, look, I don't know what happens in these Superman movies, but so much of the time, what these filmmakers seem to want to do is, hey, Superman's flying around. Let's put him out in the desert or something like that. And it, it's like it happened all the frickin' time, like in Superman the movie, in, uh, let me think, uh, even a little bit in Man of Steel. And I always thought, you know, half the coolness of seeing Superman fly around is seeing him fly around these giant frickin' buildings in Metropolis. So why they always want to move him out to the middle of nowhere i have no idea but it's just it, it's kind of neat for this one little glimpse we see superman zooming through downtown metropolis it's just really cool but to get into the meat of the scene though superman has it out with lex at the top of uh, the luther court building and basically all of the secrets and whatnot that have been kept up to this point most of them start coming out right about here that really this was all a scam that Lex was running to put Superman in conflict with Batman and verse Visa. And we get a little bit of implied history of Lex Luthor here. It's suggested that his father used to abuse him. And it's all but said that Lex is pretty much an atheist just because he struggles with the idea of an all-powerful, all-good God. And... There's just a lot of character packed in, packed into all of this dialogue. So, whoever wants to go first, you're welcome to take the lead on it. But this whole scene is really powerful, really well done. Go for it, John. Okay, I was gonna let you go, Rebecca, but um, <laughs> okay. Um, so, 
Lex is obvious that he was physically abused. Mm-hmm. Some of his word choice implies possibly that there was sexual abuse from his father right. going on. Um, and and that is that that's, you know, all kinds of terrible. Um, yeah, I, I feel like dealing with um, using that as a as a as a as a launching pad to deal with the question of good versus evil and um, omnipotence versus um, benevolence in God and all that is is certainly a position that a lot of people find themselves in. Um, what question, what answers they come to from those questions varies from person to person. Um, but certainly that kind of virtue versus evil ties into the heart of this film in a really, a, a really powerful way. The, the dialogue goes by so quickly that you don't really have a chance to sit and think about it. Right. But if you don't just dismiss the film and you do sit down and think about it later. There is so much heart-wrenching truth to what Lex Luthor is dealing with here. Um, and and I love it. And, and the thing is, from a certain point of view, everything that he says in that paragraph to Superman about Superman being fallible and he can't be all good, he's not wrong. Luthor is not wrong about Superman and Superman as a, as a manifestation of God or as a manifestation of goodness in the world. He's not wrong because Superman is fallible. And the, 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 the theme of the film is that Clark can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Luthor is just interpreting it as this like crucial fundamental feat of clay flaw that destroys the entire idea. Um, Instead of simply a, a, a an aspect of Clark's humanity that he that he has to wrestle with, um, and I don't know, I, I did we lose you? No, I'm here. Hold on. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get myself back together here. No, that's right. Um, um, I don't even know why. Just emo- emotions come up every now and then for some reason. Um, I, I, I feel that using child abuse mm-hmm. um, as a lead into atheism um, is not a method I would have chosen because certainly that's not the journey that I took. Um having both of those elements in my life, having both severe child abuse and being an atheist, to me, those two are not connected. That is not, that is not a road that I took. Um, but, you know, we do have to ask those questions about the idea of God. And I think that even though the lines are very brief here, they're very deep and important, um, elements of the character. And, uh, I'm rambling here. So Rebecca, you take over. No, no. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. Uh, yeah, I, 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 first, I think it's really interesting that it seems like both of you think that Lex Luthor is an atheist in the scene. 
Uh, I, I think that's really interesting because I think he definitely believes that God exists. I definitely think that he um, knows that there is a God. He just doesn't like him very much. That's that's how I see him. Okay, um, uh, can, I, can I just break in real quick and just say, look, I understand the definition of atheism and I understand the definition of humanism. It's just sometimes I'm stupid and I misuse words. So anyway, no, no, right. I, I, I think that, that there are possibilities to interpret it both ways. Like I think it, it just kind of depends on your perspective. But for me, I, I come back to that, uh, the scripture in the Bible where it says that you know even demons recognize that that God exists. So I, I think it's a, it's it's just a fascinating way to uh, explore that aspect of it. And I think the scene on top of the LexCorp Tower. <laughs> I've come to realize that this is a very misunderstood scene. People, I, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that people like, because at this point in the in the movie, it's pretty late late in the movie. I think people like got up and went to the restroom during the scene, because in the past week alone, I've had to explain it to two different people on Twitter, and I'm like. I know it's a, a big concept of the problem of evil, but if you just listen to the dialogue, like John beautifully, uh, you know, described how Lex's, um, you know, his his big thing is about his abuse, and like that's very clearly stated in the scene. By Le- Lex basically word vomits his whole motivation for what he's doing in the scene. He he does the the villain monologue here, and so I I, I kind of have a hard time understanding why people don't understand it. But like John said, like Lex. Uh, states that there's this whole aspect to his character that he he believes because of the problem of evil, which is a thing that has been debated for as long as people knew what those words mean. Uh, people still debate that uh, topic today, and it's it's either Lex boils it down to. Um, you're either all good or you're all powerful and you can't be both. And the reason that Lex's plan is so genius is that he sets it up so that no matter which way it goes, he wins either way. He either sets it up to where he pits Batman against Superman and Batman beats him, Lex wins. That makes Superman not all powerful. Uh, Then if he sets it up to where Superman is being framed for all these things that maybe he didn't do, like Africa in the Senate hearing, the bombing at the Senate hearing. He makes Superman look bad, and so then he's not all good. So then he wins that way too. So it's uh, it's very genius of Lex, the way that he's done this whole master plan is that no matter what outcome happens, he ends up succeeding. Um, but what I think, my personal opinion is that I think Superman does prove him wrong in a way because I think that what what I see when I see Superman uh, killing Doomsday and end, in, he ends up uh, sacrificing himself to save the world, he shows that he's both all-powerful and that he is good, that he is pure of heart, that he's selfless. So for me, I sort of think, and I, I think this is also open for interpretation, but I think he proves the point that you can be all powerful and all good. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it's. I, I think it's a very simple when you do listen to the dialogue and you pay attention to what is being said. But it is very high concept. So I can understand why some people, you know, if they didn't, if, if they did go to the bathroom and they came back and they were like, "What is happening?" It is uh, something that you have to really think through. Okay, so I think this is a pretty convenient spot for me to put a pin in the discussion, at least for right now. Come back tomorrow for the next chapter 
in the Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice retrospective. See you then. My name is Rebecca Johnson, and if you would like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at DerbyKid. That's D-E-R-B-Y-K-I-D. I have some videos on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash duckmilkprod. That's D-U-C-K-M-I-L-K-P-R-O-D. And you can see some Batman v Superman videos there if you would like. And I'm also one of the co-hosts of a podcast called Supergirl Radio, where we talk about the CW Supergirl TV series and all things Kara Zor-El. So if you like Supergirl, uh, check us out at supergirlradio.com. This is John Wilson, just inviting you to come follow me over on the Twitters at John Reads Comics. No H in John or Reads or Comics, because none of those words have H's in them. And um, I tweet often about comics. I used to do a lot of podcasts. Those are pretty much on hold right now. I haven't published anything since some family business a while back. So, But do come geek out with me about comics on Twitter. That'd be great. <laughs>